We've sung of your name, our great and mighty God. It is indeed glorious. You are indeed God who has appeared in the flesh for our salvation, for our redemption, and for your glory that we are swept up into that glory of redemption, awaiting that time of ultimate glory where it is yours that lights the new heavens and the new earth and we dwell in new bodies in a world and a universe where sin its presence is forever removed and how wonderful to think of its presence forever removed from our own hearts and us delighting in you uh, in a way that is worthy and commensurate with your true glory and it's what our hearts long for so Until that day, when we experience it in fullness, will you continue to move us from one level of glory to the next as we behold it in your word and by your spirit, opening our eyes to see it in that special ministry that he has within us as your people. We pray now that we would hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, open your Bibles. Again, to Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 through 39. We're concluding our chapter this morning in verses 37 through 39, and we're coming to the end then of Jesus' scathing rebuke against these leaders of the nation of Israel. And he concludes with words that are striking, and they're striking both in their tenderness and in their severity and in their hope. Now, one of the most tragic and sad storylines of man's existence is the refusal to respond rightly and fully to God's goodness and to God's grace. It happened in the garden when Adam and Eve turned so easily from God's truth and from God's goodness and from God's provision, and yet so easily they turned and the human race was plummeted into a state of spiritual death. After the fall, we noticed it last week, immediately in the life of Cain, who though he was being controlled by his sin, God came to him and gave him a warning, gave him opportunity to turn from that which was ruling his heart to God and to follow the example of his brother Abel, and Cain refused and experienced judgment. He experienced rejection. We see it in the Tower of Babel. We see it in Noah. For all of those years... 120 approximately, Noah built an ark. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, we are told. And yet the world refused to listen to the words of God through his servant and the world was destroyed. We see it throughout the history of Israel. No nation on this planet has enjoyed the privileges and the blessing and the special favor of God as the nation of Israel has experienced and yet her history is marked by callousness towards the things of God, towards His work in in them and among them. Probably one of those saddest words come in Jeremiah chapter 2, and why this has special meaning in the life of the nation of Israel, that theocratic nation, that nation who was the recipients of God's special covenant, and nonetheless applies to man in general also. In many ways, he says this in verse 9 of Jeremiah chapter 2. Therefore, I will contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your sons' sons I will contend. 
For cross to the coastlands of Kittim and see, and send to Kedar and observe closely, and see if there has been such a thing as this. Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder, and be very desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. How tragic. The fount of living water was before them, calling them, ready to receive them, and they rejected it for a fount of death, as it were, for their own sin, for that which is empty and vain and passing and will not last. Now by loose analogy, we could see then how similar things happened in our world, more contemporary. We can look at the history of the nation of Europe who had received such spiritual blessings, such truth rang out from her shores, as it were, particularly at the time of the Reformation. Now it is a spiritual desert. It sits in spiritual desolation. You would be hard-pressed to find a fellowship of Bible-believing and God-honoring Christians there among that nation. They exist, but they are few. In our own country, and unique within the history of the world, we've received so much of God's goodness and blessing, and yet now we as a nation essentially find God offensive, intrusive on our desire to have sin and have it at our every whim and every desire. It happens in the lives of nations and individuals, and it's tragic. God's goodness and grace and love scorned. And man's sin then is most evident in light of this tenderness of God's holy love, of His grace. Now this morning we're going to consider this reality in light of a series of contrasts, which give the framework for the Lord's concluding remarks to these leaders. And the contrast is between God's goodness and provision, His grace, His extension of mercy... And their refusal to receive it. Read with me in verses 37 through 39 of Matthew 23. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Look back at verse 37 and let's notice first a contrast between God's goodness and man's treachery. God's goodness and man's treachery. And the first example of that is that we see that God's city of blessing became a city of death. God's city of blessing became a city of death. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Jesus is not simply here identifying a location, geographical borders, as if to say that just happens to be where he is or that just happens to be where the temple dwells. It's so much more than that. In fact, here, as it often does throughout Scripture, it stands as a representative of God's people, God's covenant people, God's people whom he called out to himself, the Jewish people. It represents her because it is the centerpiece of her identity and worship as the people of God. 
Jerusalem for the nation of Israel stands as God's witness to the world that this is the people He has chosen to dwell with among all the nations of the world. And it stands, Jerusalem does, with its temple and all of the worship as a witness to the world that Israel is a nation that worships the God who is. That they are the ones called out and they have responded in obedience to their God. It's their identity as a people and it expresses their covenant relationship with God as well as God's with them. And so it is a place, therefore, at the center of the heart and of the affections of Jesus. And it comes out in his repetition when he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he says it twice because it expresses a great emotion that he feels. It comes from the depths of his heart. He loved Jerusalem. He loved Jerusalem. We get something of that somewhat in David when Psalm, or 2 Samuel 18.33 when he learned that his son was dead and he said, Oh Absalom, oh Absalom, my son, my son. It was an expression of great grief and we see that in other places throughout Scripture. Jerusalem was at the center of the affections of the heart of Jesus and therefore at the very heart of God. Now because of Jerusalem's central role in the life of the nation of Israel and God's plans for that people, it's helpful to go back and take just a brief moment and consider the light of Jerusalem in the history of the Jews. The name Jerusalem probably means most likely foundation of peace. Foundation of peace. And the first possible mention of Jerusalem is in Genesis chapter 14 verse 18 in relation to Melchizedek who was the king of Salem. Most likely he was from the area of Jerusalem. It's mentioned again in Joshua 10.1 in relation to Joshua's conquest of the land promised to the nation of Israel after he had delivered them from Egypt. A generation died in the wilderness. The second generation going in. It's mentioned again. Interestingly, in that passage in Joshua 10, the king of Jerusalem is identified as Adonai Zedek, or the Lord the righteous, or my Lord is just. However, unlike Melchizedek in Genesis 14, who was a worshiper of the one true God, this king represented Canaanite rule and was eventually destroyed in the conquest of the land by Joshua and his army. However, its significance in relation to the nation of Israel And her identity as God's covenant people resulted primarily from two key events in the history of the Jews. And we won't turn there for sake of time. I will mention them to you. The first is this. In 2 Samuel chapter 5 verses 1 through 12 accounts how David is established finally as king and ruler over God's people, both tribes, both Israel and Judah. And at that momentous time, he goes to Jerusalem where he establishes throne and the city of David, also known as Zion. It was the citadel that was there in the land. They took it from the Jebusites. Second event is when he brings the Ark of the Covenant into the city in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And it is after this event that God then makes his covenant with him, the Davidic covenant, when he says, Your house in 2 Samuel 7 and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So at that point in the history of the life of the Jews, both God's king and God's perpetual rule exercised through those kings in the line of David is there primarily in the land of, in the city of Jerusalem. 
and it was where the Ark of the Covenant dwelled. Together these symbolized God's rule and God's presence among his people. And you'll remember that after the death of David, his son Solomon was then commissioned to build the temple, the Solomonic temple, this glorious and magnificent of all the structures of the world, and particularly for the nation of Israel. It was a great temple. It was to be then again a sign to all of the world, an unmistakable image or picture of the presence of God with his people there in the temple. And that is reflected in Solomon's prayer as he prays about God's presence there among the people. These events then establish the theological, the religious, and the political centrality of Jerusalem for the Jewish nation. One author, I think, captured it well. He said this, Jerusalem became a leading symbol of Israel's belief that God ruled over the earth and that he had established David and his sons as his human vice-regents. As such, Jerusalem became the image of Israel's grand imperial hopes. It was to Jerusalem that the promises of God were centered. It was in Jerusalem that God had determined to meet with his people and all her hopes for the future were gathered. So when an Israelite thought of the presence of God and the glory of God, they thought of Jerusalem. They thought of Jerusalem. When they were in captivity and taken away, Daniel was in the land of the Babylonians and he went to pray in Daniel 6.10 and he turned his face towards Jerusalem. It was the longing of his heart. Listen to this in Psalm 137. Psalm 137. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it. But he says this in verses 5 through 6, To him who made the heavens... Excuse me. If I forget you, O Jerusalem... That was Psalm 136. Psalm 137, 5. He said, How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? This is a... Psalm of those people in captivity who were taken out of the land. He says, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. That was the heart of a righteous Israelite. And the future hopes of the final kingdom of God are seen as a time when all of the nations would come together to worship and bring their riches and their glory to Jerusalem. To Jerusalem. Listen to this anticipated in Isaiah chapter 62. He says this, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen. All day and all night they will never keep silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourself and give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in all the earth. That was their hope. That was what they rested in. That was their joy. And even after their captivity, God promised he would rebuild and re-inhabit Jerusalem. And yet the promises looked far beyond the second temple. It looked far beyond that imperfect, in one sense, of their regathering into the land, for they again fell into sin, and the temple there was less glorious. But God anticipates a temple that will be even more glorious, and a time in Jerusalem that will be like none they have ever 
known. He says this, At that time the Lord will be king, in Zechariah 14, over all of the earth, and in that day the Lord will be the only one, and His name the only one, and all the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate, as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate, from the tower of Hanal to the king's wine presses. People will live in it, and there will no longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. That was their hope. It's still their hope. It hasn't happened. It never happened in their history. And yet Jerusalem was the center then of all of these hopes, and it was also the center of their messianic expectations. And it was this hope that enthralled the people, as we was mentioned earlier this morning, when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem. They were anticipating this great and glorious exaltation of the city of Jerusalem, the Jews. He comes in and they offer him the praise that is due a king. They thought now the Messiah, at least as they understood it and as anemic as their understanding was, they thought now Messiah is coming in. What will become of Jerusalem? Surely it will be an overthrow of our enemies and an exaltation of the people of God. Again, it was the place of His covenant love and His blessing, His nearness and His presence with His people, the very picture of God's holiness and intimate relationship with those He called to Himself. And in fact, just to bring this full circle, it is still the place that God will meet with His people. It's mentioned in Revelation chapter 21. He says this, verse 2, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adored for her, adorned for her husband. In verse 10, And he carried me away into the Spirit to a great and a high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down of he- out of heaven from God. Now what's significant about the description in Gen- uh, Revelation 21 through 22 is there is no longer a temple in it. For God and the Lamb are its temple and their glory fill the new heavens and the new earth. Now why go through all of this? And much more could be said. But why go through all of this? Because we must understand the place that Jerusalem has in God's heart and all that it represents. It's only then that we'll understand the deep affection and the deep emotion and the deep charge that Jesus is going to lay at the feet of his people here. It's important to understand in order to grasp the depth of her treachery and wickedness and the violence of his people turning against him. And yet, despite all of these promises, despite its place and the hope of his people, it was a place that was marked by bloodshed. It was a city of death. In Isaiah 3.8, he says, His people have rebelled against His glorious presence. In Isaiah 28.14, he calls them scoffers who rule the people who are in Jerusalem. Speaking of the leadership and the prophets. In Jeremiah 8.5, he says, Why then has this people, Jerusalem, turned away in continual apostasy? Not once, but again and again and again and again and again. God sent His people and they turned away from Him. Micah 1.5 or Micah 3.10 Who builds Zion, he's speaking of the people, who builds Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. 
violent injustice. So in contrast to the great affection and the great promises and the great glory and the great blessing that God had put on the, pe- the land of Jerusalem and the people of the Jews and the temple, it was met only with scorn. It was met only with violence. And so Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Called out to be his own possession, to be a place of meeting, to witness of his glory and goodness, and it was a place of death. Nehemiah 9.26, Jerusalem, speaking of those, the people, has killed your prophets who have admonished them. Jeremiah 2.30, your sword has devoured your prophets. It's just the continual history over and over and over and over again of this people. Listen to 2 Chronicles 24 then. 2 Chronicles 24. We remember this from last week. It was mentioned. Let me read this account to you of Jerusalem's treatment of God's prophets that are sent to her. Here it is the account of Zechariah. Not the Zechariah mentioned. I would not hold there previous. But a Zechariah, a prophet of God nonetheless. He says, Then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah the son of Jehoiada, the priest, and he stood above the people and he said, Thus God has said, Why do you transgress the commandment of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord and He also has forsaken you. So what they do to this gracious warning? It says they conspired against Him and at the command of the king... They stoned him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. Then Joash the king did not remember the kindness which his father Jehoiada had shown to him, but he murdered his son. And as he died, he said, May the Lord see and avenge. It doesn't happen after. It doesn't end anyway after the resurrection. You remember one of the first martyrs of the church was Stephen who was stoned to death by the Jews though he had cried out to them, And called them essentially through a sermon to repentance. So Jesus is in effect saying this. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. God's heart is for you. But you scorn him. You scorn him. Notice the second contrast there in verse 37. God's tender grace then is met with callous rebellion. Callous rebellion. A city of blessing becomes a city of death. God's tender grace is met with callous rebellion. Tender grace, tender grace. He says, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. These are some of the most amazing and tender words in all of Scripture. And remember that God is speaking them to an apostate people, to a people who has rejected Him, who have murder in their hearts, who are preparing even at that moment the leadership anyway to get rid of Him and to put Him to death. And yet Jesus says to these who will be the instruments of his own suffering, how often I desire to gather your children together. This phrase, how often, indicates that Jesus had much more interaction in Jerusalem that is recorded in the synoptics, although we do have some of those accounts in John. Indeed, John 21 tells us if all the things were recorded, there were not enough books on the planet to mark it all down. But Jesus had made repeated Repeated calls to his people to turn, to receive the grace of God that was present in him in a unique way, like it had never been present before. And it shows the persistence at which he sought them. He sought their repentance. He called them to receive the kingdom of God. 
Despite the woes, despite the reality of their coming judgment, God does not delight in her destruction, but in her repentance. He does not delight in the death of the wicked, especially among His people, but rather that they would repent and be forgiven and be saved. He says, I wanted to gather your children. He means here by this, I, meant, I wanted to bring you under my care. I wanted to bring you under my protection. I wanted to be a place to you of comfort of safety, of provision. I wanted to guard you. I wanted to show affection to you. And yet, you would not have it. You would not have it. And this is really a powerful illustration, one that God uses throughout His Word. I'll just mention a couple to you. In Deuteronomy 32.11, God says through His servant Moses, That he is like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young. He spread his wings and he caught them and he carried them on his pinions. Speaking of the great love of God for his people. He says in verse 12, The Lord alone guided him and there was no foreign God with him. And he made him ride on the high places of the earth. And he ate the produce of the field. And he made him suck honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock. And on he goes. That's God's design for you. That's God's plan for you. It's what He intends. It's what He wants. He mentions it over and over again. One more, Psalm 36, verse 7. Psalm 36, verse 7. Listen to these tender words. The psalmist says this, How precious is your loving kindness, O God! And the children of men do what? They take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house, and you have given them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. Jesus is saying, How often I wanted that to be the reality for you. How often I wanted to give that to you. How often I wanted to bring you into the experience of these blessings of the loving kindness, the guidance, the protection of God. And yet you would not have it. And notice here, just as with verse 34, Jesus stands in the place of God. He stands and He speaks with the authority of God. It is Jesus who will send His prophets. And here it is Jesus, how often I wanted to gather your children. God gathers the children. These are not the words of a man, but these are the words of Israel's God. And so Jesus spoke tenderly, continually, and continually throughout their history. Can we forget some of those most precious words in all of Scripture in Matthew 11, 28? After decrying the great rejection of Chorazin and Bethsaida, comparing them to be even worse than Sodom and Gomorrah, and yet He says to that crowd, Come to Me, come to Me, You who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and I am humble in heart. God so often, repeatedly seeks His people in tender mercy. He does it for us at times when we sin. And our hearts are spiritually dry or callous. He tenderly seeks us by His Spirit and by His Word. And those who know Christ and those who love Christ are drawn by that tenderness. They are refreshed and renewed again to come and to bow the knee before this gracious God who has forgiven them their sin and continually wipes them away the stain of their sin. His tenderness brings us to repentance. And to the sinner who is under conviction of sin, his call for grace melts the heart of stone. 
It is a welcome call and it is welcome arms that they see in Christ who invites them to come to Him. He is the one who invites us near. I want you to notice here too that Christ is the model of the balance between tender compassion and uncompromising honesty. He's showing tenderness here and yet at the same time He wept for them in Luke 19.41 when He entered into Jerusalem because He knew the coming destruction. And love has both sides to it as perfectly modeled here by Christ. There is the reality of judgment that we are required by truth to proclaim without holding back any of its seriousness and its reality. And yet, godliness is marked by the ability to do that with tears in our eyes, with weeping. We don't do that gloating. We do that with tenderness. We do that with true sorrow for the sight of those who reject Him. Listen to Paul. Philippians 3.18, he says in addressing the false teachers, he says, and we know that Paul addresses directly the the false teachers, but he says, many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction and whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame and who set their mind on earthly things. He points out their sin, but he does it with a tear. He does it with weeping. The Jews repeatedly threw him out of their synagogues, tried to have him killed, tried to beat him in mobs that came upon him. And yet he repeatedly went into their synagogues. Why? Because he had a heart for them. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ in Romans 9. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Why? For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh who are Israelites, who, to whom belong the adoption of sons, the glory and the covenant and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises and so on. I long for them to be saved, and yet I know that right now there is destruction because of the rejection of Christ. And so Jesus here with tenderness, He's saying, I wanted to gather you together, but you would not have it. And notice what He says, you were unwilling. You were unwilling. Can you think of more grievous words than these words? You were unwilling. This is the tragedy of sin. The amazing callousness and obstinance of the fallen human heart. The willingness of God reaches out to the most vile sinner. There is no sin that could be committed. No life of vile wickedness that could be indulged in that is beyond the willingness of God to forgive at repentance and faith. And it's this willingness of God to save even the most vile sinner that makes the rejection of it all the worse. That God is willing And we are not. And again, this is the pattern in Israel's sake throughout her history. Let me just read you one more text. Jeremiah chapter 6. He says this in verses 16 and 17. Thus says the Lord, Stand by the ways and ask for the ancient path where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk in it. And I set watchmen over you, saying, Listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, We will not listen. God called, they refused to hear. God called, they refused to hear. And again, that's the pattern of fallen man throughout the history of the world. It's most 
tragic in some sense to Israel here because they had such unparalleled advantage. But it is what happens, it's the case with all fallen men who reject the gospel. Every time the gospel is preached, every time we witness to someone, every time it goes out over the radio, in a church service, a personal conversation, somebody reads it in a book, in the Bible, every time the gospel goes out, it is a gracious call of God to that sinner to say, come to me. Be restored and be forgiven. Receive my son and know my mercy and my compassion. Every time that the gospel of Christ is made known, it is God's expression of his willingness to save, even his plea in some sense to come to him. Listen to John chapter 5, verse 40. Just listen. He says this. To these Jews, he says, verse 39, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. In other words, you're totally blind to the meaning of them, blind to the God who's in them. And he says, You were unwilling to come to me that you may have life. That you may have life. Now this willingness of God then does not exclude the inability of man, but it looks at it from the side of God's gracious heart. It looks at it from the side of what he would desire. It looks at it from the desire, the side of what he's willing to do. And it exalts the perfection of God's character and his justice while displaying man's treachery. Listen to the words of J.C. Ryle. Commenting on this passage, he says, A will to repent and believe no man can give himself, but a will to reject Christ and have his own way every man possesses by nature. And if not saved at last, that will prove to have been his destruction. His destruction. Now why were they unwilling? Why were they unwilling? The simple answer is this. Because that's what sin does. It deceives. And it blinds. And it convinces the heart inside of one's own wisdom. And it lures with the pleasures of self-gratification apart from God. That's what sin does. The essence of sin is captured really by John's words. We see it throughout scripture. It is the lust of the flesh. Speaking there of self-gratification. Pleasure. The lust of the eyes, coveting, greed, longing for those things of this world apart from God. The boastful pride of life, pride and arrogance and self-reliance. And sin deceives by all of these things and convinces that there is a better joy apart from God. In every sin and every unrepentant sinner, there is a belief in the lie that it's better for me if I go my own way. There's more pleasure for me if I go my own way. If I take this course rather than God's. If I listen to this voice rather than to God's, it will be better than me, for me. I can remember that. Many of us can before coming to Christ. That was the life we lived until God mercifully revealed to us the vileness of our sin, the wonder of His atoning grace in Christ, and we saw in Christ our reconciliation, our hope, our joy. And until God reveals that to the human heart, the human heart is always going to be unwilling to come to Christ. Oh, people make responses for all different kinds of reasons, but there will not be a repentance and delight in Christ. God must make the heart willing, but God is always willing to save. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, Jesus has already mentioned at the heart of these leaders, part of their rebellion, he says that they said in the parable, the illustration of the landowners, they said, come, let us kill him, the leaders, and seize his inheritance. 
And again, this shows that there really is a sense in which these leaders thought that they themselves could bring in and enjoy the kingdom of God apart from an absolute repentance before God and a poverty of spirit. But that's not the case. And so God has then a word of judgment. And so while God's willingness to save is without limit, His tenderness toward repentant sinners knows no bounds. His wrath is equal to the offense of scorned love and the rejection of infinite mercy. So look at verse 38. Look at verse 38. In contrast to the opportunity of blessing to Noah's care and protection, now only the wrath of God, the wrath of a loving and gracious God who has been scorned by His people. And so He gives the promise of desolation. Verse 38. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Behold here replaces the woe of the previous verses, but nonetheless it is an announcement of destruction. It's an announcement of destruction. Your house here refers primarily to the temple. The temple. And notice what he says. He says, and it's even more emphatic in the Greek, your house Your house is being left to you. He's distancing himself from the hypocritical and dead and vain worship that was going on. He says, your house is being left to you and it's being left to you desolate. In other words, it's your house that I'm bringing destruction on, not my house. Not my house. It's your house. That's your house. It's called a house because again, God had, the imagery there is of God having placed those those symbols of His presence and His care and His covenant with His people. He is the one who ordained the structure. But inasmuch as the people rejected their God, it's no longer His house. It's just a building that God will destroy and remove. And so He says it's going to be left to you desolate. Desolate. A powerful picture here of abandonment, desolation, destruction, forsakenness. The main idea here is of God's judgment both by abandonment and His destruction. Similar in some ways to his glory leaving the temple as Ezekiel saw it in the vision in Ezekiel 10 through 11. The glory of God left and then it prepared the people for the destruction that was to come. And so they aren't any better than we are as a people who fail to learn from history. Who fail to learn from their history. God had warned them that this would happen. He warned them all the way back in the law. We won't turn there. Leviticus 26. God told them of the desolation that was going to come if they failed to listen to the word of God. He told them also of the blessing. He warned them after the split of the kingdom. He warned the king in 1 Kings 9, 6-9 that if you do not listen to my voice, destruction is going to come. It's going to come. Listen to what he says. 1 Kings chapter 9, he says this. But if you or your sons indeed turn away from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them and the house which I have consecrated for my name and I will cast out my, out of my sight so Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house, this temple will become a heap of ruins. And everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss and say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And they will say, because they forsook the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all this adversity on them. And guess what? They didn't listen and God did exactly that. Exactly that. 
And this is precisely what happened then in the destruction of the temple in their history by Nebuchadnezzar, ultimately in 586. God continually warned, and they continually ignored. The king made a first pass at the land of Jerusalem around 605, took away Daniel and some others from the land, but they did not repent and turn back to their God. The king came down and made another pass at the land and the destruction was even worse and more were taken off to captivity around 597 and yet they failed to return to him. He came back about 10 years later and the final blow was dealt with devastating desolation. And that is when the temple was destroyed and they went and underwent horrific destruction in the land of Jerusalem. Isaiah 64.10 describes it like this. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. They were subject to intense starvation. Men were killed with the sword. Many dragged off to captivity. The temple laid in ruins, plundered and burned with fire. Desolation had come. You can read about it in 2 Chronicles 36. Lamentations is a whole book by the weeping prophet Jeremiah describing the devastation that had come upon the land. Children died in the streets. Lamentations 2, 11-12 speaks of a mother dying while even sucking from its mother's breast. Because it was dry, there was no food. Lamentations 4, 11 tells of a mother so stricken with hunger that she boiled and ate her own dead children. Those who walked in wealth and purple and were girded with strength were reduced to nothing but ashes and humbled to the ground. This was the destruction that came because the Lord's offer of peace and repentance was refused. And here Jesus is declaring that same destruction except even worse. And somehow they had convinced themselves that it would not happen to them. That it would not happen to them. Beloved, let us not miss that this happens all the time. Parker prayed it in his prayer of those who are the mixed crowd who follow in the church. How many unregenerate religious people like those that Jesus is referring to here who can hear the warnings, who can acknowledge even the rightness of it, all the while convincing themselves, but it doesn't really apply to them. It's not going to come upon them. And that's exactly what they thought. And they ignored his warning and the destruction did come. This time it would come at the hands of a Roman general named Titus, later would be emperor. He destroyed Jerusalem, killed many of their inhabitants, plundered and burned the temple in 70 AD. There was a Jewish revolt that began about 66 AD and they were essentially just tired of the oppression of Rome in many areas of life and they revolted led by the zealots primarily who instirred insurrection against these oppressors of the Jewish nation. And they launched off an attack in, the, in gruesome details. At the end of this attack, Titus was assigned by his father Vespian, who was at that point emperor, to go in and complete the job against these rebellious Jews. So Titus built a siege wall around Jerusalem, which produced a famine and intense hunger in the walls of the city. The details of this period are described by Josephus in Jewish War. Let me give you just some of them. Describing the effects of the famine on soldiers after the siege wall had been put up. He says, Hunger was so intolerable that it obliged them to chew anything while they gathered such things as the most sordid animals would not touch and endured to eat them. He speaks of them taking the leather from their shields and their shoes simply to gnaw on to alleviate some of the hunger. But in order to give the true effects of the horror of what 
God had brought upon his people. He mentions an account of a wealthy woman by the name of Mary, who happened to be in Jerusalem at the time of the siege. And at first, she was a woman of some means. She was a wealthy woman. And she had food, and the Jewish guards or soldiers would come, and they would take food from her and ravish her. But eventually, eventually all of the food was gone. And she's soon reduced to desperation. He mentions the famine pierced through her very bowels and marrow. And then he records this following episode. Listen, it's somewhat extended, but listen. She then attempted a most unnatural thing, and snatching up her son, who was a child, sucking at her breast, she said, Oh, you miserable infant, for whom shall I preserve you in this war, this famine, this rebellion? As to the war with the Romans, if they preserve our lives, we must be slaves. The famine also will destroy us, even before that slavery comes upon us. Come on, be you my food, and be a fury to these rebellious varlets, and a byword to the world, which is all that is now or wanting to complete the calamities of us Jews. As soon as she had said this, she killed her son, and then roasted him, and ate the one half of him, and kept the other half by her concealed. Upon this, the rebellious came in presently, and smelling the horrid scent of this food, they threatened her that they would cut her throat immediately if she did not show them what food she had gotten ready. She replied that she had saved a very fine portion of it for them, and nonetheless uncovered what was left of her son. But they were seized with horror and amazement of mind, and stood astonished at the sight when she said to them, "'This is my own son, and what has been done was my own doing.'" Come, eat of this food, for I have eaten of it myself. Do not you pretend to be either more tender than a woman or more compassionate than a mother? But if you be so scrupulous and do abominate this my sacrifice as I have eaten the one half, let the rest be reserved for me also. After which those men went out trembling, being never so much frightened at anything as they were at this. And it gets worse He later describes the atrocities that happened at the hands of the Roman soldiers so much that when they were trying to chase those that were fleeing to them, they had difficulty because they needed to step over all of the dead bodies that laid in the streets. So many that he says the streets were nowhere visible. Others were crowded and tried to hide themselves in protection in the temple and were only slaughtered there. Others tried to hide themselves in rooms in the walls of the outer court only to be burned. Many of them, he says, thrown down headlong and some were burned in the passage themselves. And on it went. The Romans utterly destroyed the temple. They killed thousands and thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of Jews. Over a million died in the whole episode. They died by the sword. They died by crucifixion. They died by famine, by torture, by fire. All of that, the desolation that Jesus is speaking of here. Desolation is coming upon you because of your rejection. And this actually was not the end. Though the temple was destroyed and that was a great blow to the Jews. They still remained a statehood until the war of Bar Kokhba in 132 to 1 that ended in 135. And it was after that destruction by the Romans that the Jews lost their statehood. And they were forever then dispersed until 1947 or 1948 when they were again made a state. But all that time in between there, they weren't. They had experienced the judgment and the desolation that Jesus spoke of here. And not only is it desolation, he speaks of abandonment. Abandonment. He says, 
For I say to you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now in one sense, they would not see him because they were going to kill him and put him to death. And though he would rise, though he would appear again, and though he would ascend back to the Father, they would not see him until he returns. Until that time, and until that time they will continue to suffer. And they have suffered like no other people throughout the centuries. They live in a relative security now, not a total. As a matter of fact, you can read the news. There's rises of anti-Semitism throughout Europe that are increasing. That's why Netanyahu is inviting them to come back to Israel. He says, guess what? It's a place of protection. You will find refuge and you will find protection here. He's inviting them back. Even to this day, we see these realities being played out before our eyes. And there's more destruction to come. More destruction to come. We'll consider that more when we get into chapter 24. But he says in Matthew 24, 21, he reminds them, For there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until, until now, nor ever will. But praise God that suffering is not the end of the story. Look what he says there at the end, in the end of verse 39. He says, Until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's quoting here from Psalm 118, verse 26. And it refers here to Israel's rejoicing at the appearance of her Messiah. It is not a hopeful word. It is not a word of her destruction saying, until you do this, then he will come. He's saying this will be the attitude when he comes. God is determined when he comes. And he says, when he does, when that time comes, these will be the words of your mouth. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And again, it was already mentioned, these are the words that they sang in throngs, essentially those who came out to meet Jesus as he entered into the land of Jerusalem. And it was empty. They didn't understand it. They didn't mean it from the heart, or he wouldn't have been put to death. But they, sang, they said the words. They said the words hypocritically or in vanity at first, but they will be a time when they say them in truth. There will be a time when they as a nation turn to their God. This is what is anticipated. Throughout Scripture, again, we'll look at more of this down the road when we get into chapter 24. But this is indeed the hope of the people of Israel. He says in Romans 11, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. A partial hardening, not a complete hardening. There are Jews who are being saved. There are many Jews who are coming to know Christ. But as a nation, they're mostly hardened. And it's happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion and He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So in terms of the gospel, they are enemies at this point in the sense of that they resist it. In terms of God's saving purposes, they are called He has entered into a promised relationship that will not be taken away. So he's not put them aside forever, but he has for now. And this is an interesting contrast that's implied. When he comes and returns, we understand that it is also to bring destruction on the world. And so it's flip-flopped. This time he came to the Jews, they rejected him, and so it was destruction for the Jews, salvation for the Gentiles. When he comes again, it will be destruction for the Gentiles and salvation for the Jews. When they finally receive him as their Messiah. 
Now let me give you just very quickly four points out of this that I want you to take home. Four points, and I'm going to mention these very, very quickly. The first is this. Judgment is coming upon the world. Judgment is coming upon the world. We really need to grasp that. I don't think we grasp that. I've been praying to the Lord to help me grasp that more in my heart. To understand that. There's a natural tendency to shy away from this reality. And it can be difficult to look around at our neighborhoods, our communities, and think that they will experience a judgment even more severe than the destruction of the temple. But God's words, God's words says that they will. That all who are outside of Christ will. And it's just far too easy to forget the seriousness of sin and the reality of judgment that is coming and to be lulled into a kind of complacency or apathetic attitude towards sin and the fallenness of our culture and our world. It's very easy to be lulled into that and not grasp the reality of the sin or the judgment that is coming upon the world for its sin. A second point is this. God really is holy and sin really does provoke Him. It really does. Because God so often stays His hand of judgment, and because we are so accustomed to common grace and His mercy on sinners and our culture, we can forget how holy God actually is and how much He really does hate sin. He really does hate it. Asap in Psalm 73 gives us an illustration of this. He saw them just lavishing in their wickedness and increasing, and he said for a while he was like a wild animal until he considered their end. He went to the temple and he understood their end. And then he gained wisdom. And then his heart was turned back to God. We live in a general culture and even much of the professing church, Christian church, that is shocked at the severity of God's judgment. And many are embarrassed by it. The reality of God's judgment. Or they cannot accept it. And the problem is, is that there is such an anemic view of God and therefore there is an anemic view of sin with an anemic view of the cross that cannot grasp the reality of judgment. And yet we need to. Jesus himself lays it before us. That's why we must cultivate and teach and witness and be exposed to those things that exalt the glory of God and the holiness of God in our heart. Otherwise, sin and judgment and ultimately the cross simply will not be that serious or glorious. We need to see God like Isaiah saw God in the temple. Thirdly, is this. We need to understand the reality that judgment is coming. We need to understand that God really is holy and sin provokes Him. Thirdly, we need to understand that God exercises amazing patience. Amazing patience. Think of how long the sin of His people endured before He brought destruction. On and on it went, continually reminding them and calling them back, and yet he was patient toward them. He was patient. He was demonstrating exactly the glory that he had revealed of himself to Moses on the rock when he said that he is long-suffering. He's full of loving kindness. He is slow to anger. Consider how long his patience endured the rejection repeatedly of his servants when he sent them to call his people to repentance. Consider this. Meditate on the fact of how much God is provoked every day as every sin in the entire world is constantly before his eyes as it's like smoke in his eyes or smoke in his nostrils. And yet God stays his hand of judgment. Think not only of individual sin, but the sin of an entire nation that blasphemes and is turned on God and how he is patient in withholding his hand of judgment. And these are continued, even us, allowed to live in relative peace and safety, though we provoke Him. 
though his image bearers across the world every moment of the day are provoking him to wrath, and yet he withholds his judgment. Read 2 Peter 3, 3-9 and see the patience of God. Fourth and lastly, Christ is returning. We need to recognize he's returning in glory and for our salvation. The Jews, so they had suffered, though they had suffered much, will know as a nation his salvation. And even though now there is a suffering church and there will be more, and though the sin and the violence and the immorality and the blasphemy of the world is increasing, yet God will establish his kingdom. God will come and we will know the fullness of our salvation when he who is revealed in whom is our life and our hope and our salvation and joy. Christ is returning and will establish his kingdom. There will be a new heavens and a new earth and we need to lay hold of that. And we need to be like those in Hebrews 10.25 when we gather together as the people of God that we encourage one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Because it is a true day and it's coming and we should be greatly sober because of the judgment and hopeful because of the ultimate salvation for all who have taken refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your tenderness that is displayed all throughout Scripture and in our lives continually as we who know you are reminded freshly of your grace to us in Christ. We're reminded of the sweet communion that we can have with you only because of your mercy and giving us your Son, removing the barrier and the hostility of our sin and drawing us near by your Spirit into that eternal communion that you have known as Father and Son and Spirit. Help us to grow in that. Help us to grasp with even greater awareness in our own hearts of the greatness of your holiness and the reality of judgment that we might walk wisely in this world and be sober-minded. How offensive in some ways it is to see many of your people who act as if this were not the truth, as if it weren't coming, but it is. And so help us to be sober. Help us to have that proper balance of weeping at your judgment and yet boldly proclaiming it, begging sinners that they might be reconciled to you while warning them of the consequences of rejecting you. Help us to display your heart, O Christ. And as always, Lord, we remember if there's any here who don't know you that today might be the day of their salvation. If the, you, Holy Spirit, are prompting them in their heart that they would respond in true and full repentance and faith in Christ. We thank you and we pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.